welcome to Since the World's Been Turning. This podcast series is a journey through history, one guided by the lyrics of Billy Joel's song, We Didn't Start the Fire. In this episode, we discuss the most famous French leader of the 20th century, General Charles de Gaulle. He's the stubborn military commander who defied the Germans during World War II and became the voice of hope that inspired thousands. After the war, he was also the president who restored order to war-torn France. He returned to power again in 1958 when he handled the Algerian crisis and founded France's Fifth Republic. We're joined in this episode by very special guest Lord Peter Ricketts, long-time diplomat and the former British ambassador to France between 2012 and 2016. The year is 1916. A disgruntled 26-year-old French soldier has had yet another failed escape attempt from a German prisoner of war camp. In total, Charles de Gaulle spends 32 months as a prisoner, most of them in Ingolstadt Fortress on the banks of the River Danube. During World War I, the fortress is called the Escape Academy, as it's where the recidivist escapees are sent. De Gaulle's escape attempts have included tunnelling, hiding in a washing basket, digging a hole in a wall, and faking illness to get into the sanatorium, then posing as a nurse. On one occasion, de Gaulle manages to get halfway to the Swiss border before being recaptured. Like many young French soldiers, de Gaulle went into the war in 1914 with an idealistic and patriotic attitude, but two years later he's disillusioned. In his letters home to his parents, he describes the French Parliament as odious and stupid. After his third failed attempt at escape, he tells his mother he's gripped by a grief so bitter and so deep. I do not think I will ever again experience anything like it. Despite the overwhelming emotions he feels, de Gaulle makes the most of his time at Ingolstadt. He keeps his mind busy, perusing the news every day, and reading books on philosophy and on German music and history. He even starts giving lectures to fellow officers. He keeps notebooks where he writes ponderously about the nature of leadership and the type of leader he would like to become. His resourcefulness and strength of character will serve him well in the years that follow. He's born Charles-André-Joseph-Marie de Gaulle in French Flanders, on the 22nd of November, 1890. His parents are Parisian, but they've followed tradition, travelling north to his mother Jean's family home for the final months of her pregnancy. Charles is the third of five siblings, and he grows up in a very traditional Catholic family that values piety and hard work. In the latter half of the 19th century, the de Gaulles were among the bourgeoisie who supported the return of French monarchy. Their dreams of a return to pre-revolutionary times were bitterly thwarted in 1875 when yet another republic was established. Charles de Gaulle's father, Henri, is the headmaster of a Jesuit school 
and young Charles is educated in Catholic schools, not the secular ones run by the state. He loves history and literature, and since childhood he has idolised military heroes. He feels an affinity for Cyrano de Bergerac, and he's also interested in Napoleon. It's not long before he settles on the army as a career path. In his late teens, Charles also shows an interest in religion, working as a stretcher-bearer at Lourdes and attending a Jesuit religious retreat. As an adult, he doesn't tend to discuss theology, but throughout his life always observes religious rituals with military precision. To him, Catholicism is an integral part of being French. The most fateful meeting of the young Charles de Gaulle's military career comes in 1912, after he graduates from the Academy of Saint-Cyr. He chooses to join the infantry, and that is when he first encounters Marshal Philippe Pétain. Pétain will be his commanding officer two years later, at the bloody nine-month-long Battle of Verdun. He's considered France's best strategist, and it's thanks to him that France is ultimately victorious. Verdun leaves a lasting impression on the young Charles de Gaulle. Our distinguished guest, Lord Peter Ricketts, discusses the impact of this time on the young soldier. I think the whole experience of the First World War had a huge effect on him. Uh, in particular, the spectacle of battles like Verdun, um, static battles, trench warfare, thousands of people killed in any um, kilometre of advance. And after the First World War, he became one of the early converts to the tank and mobile warfare um, and getting away from the French obsession with static warfare. And he made a reputation for himself in the 1920s as a thinker about military affairs and approaching the perennial problem of how to defend France against German attack in a new way with more emphasis on kind of armor and, and the, the new technologies like the tank. Returning to 1918, how does Charles de Gaulle fare once he's released from the prisoner of war camp? His letters back to his parents as the war draws to a close are grim. He describes himself as a ghost. He's overwhelmed from spending nearly three years in prison, and he feels like he's failed. He's genuinely terrified that this will be the end of his career. But once he reaches France again, he recovers from this spell of melancholy. He takes a course designed specifically for French officers taken prisoner, and less than a year after the end of the war, he travels to Poland to instruct the officer corps of the new Polish army. On his travels to Warsaw, de Gaulle makes ominous observations of the German people he meets. Behind their smiling faces, he thinks he can detect a desire for revenge. However, he also admits in his letters that World War I has left him with a general feeling of xenophobia. He complains about the insolence and uselessness of the Americans, the British and the Italians who travel to Warsaw to help. After a year in Poland, he returns to France to enrol in a training course for senior officers. 
he returns again to Poland in July 1920, and after witnessing the resolution of the conflict there, he realises that a country is only defeated when it has lost the will to fight. In the mid-1920s, de Gaulle begins to work directly for Marshal Pétain. It's a great opportunity for a young officer, and de Gaulle's association with this war hero will eventually take him into politics. But he has no way of knowing that about 15 years later, he and Pétain will end up on opposite sides. Lord Ricketts speaks about the friendship between these two men. And de Gaulle came to be a bit of a protégé of Pétain, and as Pétain rose up through the ranks to, to become head of the armed forces, he took de Gaulle with him, and he gave de Gaulle a key role in the central planning staffs of the French military, and gave him a license to talk and give conferences and write, and indeed write books about his theories of the army and warfare in the future. So without Pétain to give him that platform, de Gaulle would not have become the uh, very well-known, controversial, younger, brilliant army officer that he was. Uh, and uh, Pétain accepted as well that de Gaulle would have political links, and he made links with a number of French politicians, including particularly Paul Reynaud, who turned out then to be the prime minister in those terrible months of 1940 as the Germans invaded again. So de Gaulle was a political officer, but very much under the wing of Pétain, until they finally fell out with each other in 1938. They had a big falling out. And so by the time the Second World War broke out, they, their relations were very cool. But for most of de Gaulle's military career, Pétain was his, his model, his hero. During the 1920s and 30s, not just de Gaulle's professional life, but his personal life have challenges. He and his new wife, Yvonne Verdoux, have two healthy children, but their third child, Anne, is born with severe Down syndrome. At this time, most children with significant disabilities go into asylums, but the de Gaulle's defy convention, raising Anne with the rest of the family. De Gaulle himself is not usually sentimental, but he sees Anne as a gift that God has chosen to give him and Yvonne. People who see the forbidding-looking military man talk and sing to Anne are surprised and moved by his affection for her. Between 1932 and 1934, nine governments come and go in France, struggling to cope with the Great Depression. De Gaulle and Yvonne purchase a house in the village of Colombay-les-Deux-Églises, deep in the French countryside, where he writes and publishes studies on leadership and military theory. Time spent in the Rhineland in the 1920s has left him uneasy about the prospect of a German invasion, and he wants to see France with a professional army, not just conscripts. But to many French people, World War I was supposed to be the war to end all wars. They're not interested in hearing de Gaulle's warnings about another potential bloody conflict. In 1935, de Gaulle's supporter, the politician Paul Renault, puts the idea of a professional army forward during a parliamentary debate. Left-wing politicians mock him, saying, all that is missing are the red trousers, 
referring to the clothes the French soldiers wore when they marched to their deaths in 1914. Here's our guest, Lord Ricketts, talking about France's defence at this time and the outbreak of World War II. De Gaulle emerged from the First World War convinced that um, the French army could not defend against future wars with Germany. And remember, they'd already had two by then, one in 1870 and the other in 1914. In both cases, the Germans had swept into France. And de Gaulle was absolutely sure that the way to defend France was to improve the technology of their armed forces, to re-equip with the latest weapons, and particularly to think about defending France with mobile forces of tanks and, and armoured vehicles. Yet the orthodoxy of the French chiefs of staff in the 1920s and 30s was again to build a static defence. Uh, they built the famous Maginot line of forts, which was designed again to stop the German invasion. Uh, and de Gaulle was strongly against that and lobbied passionately for more spending on the armed forces, more investment in the latest technology, and to move away from the old thinking. And of course, when the Germans did attack in 1940, they went right around the edge of the Maginot Line, and de Gaulle was shown to have been right. And too late, people realized that his um, theories about armored warfare were worth listening to. Uh, and indeed, he was made a junior minister of defense just in the last days before um, the government collapsed. So his, his um, thinking about uh, military affairs was shown to be accurate, but throughout the 20s and 30s, he was out of uh, kilter with his own chiefs of defence staff. De Gaulle finally enters Renaud's government on the 5th of June 1940, meeting Winston Churchill on several occasions. British opinion of de Gaulle is mixed. He is clearly very astute, but his natural reserve and his occasional rudeness don't always make a good impression. But de Gaulle doesn't have to navigate these tricky waters for long. Renaud resigns on June the 16th, and Marshal Pétain, now estranged from de Gaulle, takes over as leader. He appoints the pro-armistice military leader Maxime Wagon as his Minister of Defence. Renaud encourages de Gaulle to leave, and the following day he climbs aboard an English plane bound for London. It's an extraordinary move. He knows no one, he can't speak the language well, and he takes only two suitcases and a small supply of money. Once there, de Gaulle manages to get an audience with Winston Churchill, who agrees that he can use the BBC to rally the French people. And this is the start of his famous patriotic broadcasts. Lord Ricketts describes de Gaulle's arrival in England and the position he was in. I think Paul Reno himself wanted to fight on, um, but there was almost nobody else in his cabinet who was willing to do that. And so really as a sort of last act of desperation, I think he told de Gaulle to get out while he could uh, and go to London. I don't think he had any clear idea of the role that de Gaulle could play there or, or how things might play out. So it was, a, it was a tactical gamble to at least have a voice outside France speaking for French independence. Um, but it was de Gaulle almost entirely, I think, who seized that opportunity and, and made something really extraordinary out of it, given the very, very few 
tools he had at his disposal when he arrived in London. De Gaulle's second broadcast of 1940 attacks the newly declared Franco-German armistice, describing it as a servissement or enslavement. He says that as long as the Allies continue the war, the government of France has no right to surrender. France's allies are strong, he says, and they rule the waves. France has suffered a great defeat, but it's folly to consider the war already lost. Defence Minister Wagand responds by demoting him from the rank of general. Over the next few months, de Gaulle and Pétain become involved in an unprecedented rivalry for the hearts and minds of the French people. De Gaulle takes aim at his former commander, alluding bitterly to Pétain's military accomplishments in World War I, saying, To accept such an act of enslavement, we did not need you, Monsieur le Maréchal, we did not need the victor of Verdun. Anyone else would have done. On August the 2nd, a French military court, fearing de Gaulle's influence, condemns him to death in absentia. The free French numbers grow gradually in the UK, with the support of the English government. But rallying the French while based in another country is not always easy, particularly after Britain attacks the Vichy French Navy in North Africa. In retaliation, France attacks Gibraltar. De Gaulle is torn. He doesn't know what to do. But after a silence of a few days, he releases another broadcast, saying that while the British attack was deplorable, it was better than the ships being taken by the Germans. At this point, de Gaulle is truly an exile, based out of only a few rooms in London's Mayfair. His attitude during his early years in Britain is famous. He's willful, independent and extremely stubborn. The general can be a nightmare to deal with, and his relationship with both Roosevelt and Churchill is famously difficult. Lord Ricketts talks about the tensions between the leaders. De Gaulle had uh, famously difficult relations with Churchill, um, but actually they were even worse with Roosevelt. With Churchill, because they were two strong, powerful personalities in the same city, uh, mostly, um, they were inevitably going to rub each other up. Um, de Gaulle was totally dependent on Churchill and British support and British resources, which he hated, um, but recognised was essential. Churchill found de Gaulle uh, stubborn, difficult, ungrateful, um, but recognised his raw political power, and he recognised that de Gaulle was was um, the West's best bet as a future leader of France who would be non-communist and bring France back into, into the you know, Western allies. And so, although they had huge rows, Anthony Eden and the Foreign Office had to do a lot of shock absorbing between them, uh, their relationship you know, remained intact. And, and at the end, Churchill supported de Gaulle uh, as, the, as the leader of the Free French uh, in 1944. Roosevelt, we didn't know de Gaulle, uh, they, they barely have ever met, um, but he regarded him as a pain in the neck. Um, he thought de Gaulle had a Joan of Arc complex um, and that it wasn't necessarily in American interest to see de Gaulle become the leader of France. And so Roosevelt was always, always very cool about de Gaulle, which of course de Gaulle strongly resented and had an impact on the way de Gaulle 
thought about and, and treated the Americans long afterwards in the post-war period, as perhaps we can talk about. So uh, I think Roosevelt had a kind of uh, unreasonable obsession about de Gaulle. Churchill found him, as I say, difficult, but recognized his political um, importance to the UK and, and the Allies uh, for the post-war period. In 1941, another fateful meeting occurs. De Gaulle meets a refugee called Jean Moulin, a high-ranking civil servant who was the prefect of Chartres near Paris. Moulin attempted suicide after refusing to state that French Senegalese troops had been responsible for war crimes committed by German soldiers. He survived, and the Germans didn't detain him, but he was fired from his post a few months afterwards. He spent months travelling around France collecting information about the different resistance groups operating before crossing the Channel. Lord Ricketts speaks now about the French resistance and Moulin's role in bringing them together under the leadership of de Gaulle. De Gaulle was clear from the outset, I think, that he could only uh, have a future in France if he could show himself as the political head of the resistance. Um, in the early years of the war, the resistance was very divided. Um, there was no clear leader. Um, there was a very strong communist influence. Uh, and there were a lot of different local groups all around France who, for obvious reasons, um, didn't uh, talk to each other for security purposes. Um, and there was no clear political leadership. And de Gaulle was absolutely clear that he had to have that leadership and not allow the communists to dominate it. And so he... Uh, asked Jean Moulin, who was a, a French préfet, a French official, um, who had been um, in power even briefly under Vichy, who'd come to London. He sent Moulin out to France to be his representative to the resistance and to work to federate them into a single um, broad grouping. And Moulin, who was a very brave man and very effective, brilliant organiser, got a long way towards doing that until he was betrayed by the Germans and captured and, and killed uh, in 1943. But by then, uh, de Gaulle was well on the way to establishing his political grip on the resistance. And although there were communists who wanted um, the resistance to continue after the liberation and to become a political force, um, uh, indeed even try to rule France, de Gaulle was clear that the resistance's uh, role was during the occupation, as soon as the occupation finished, the goal was clear that he was going to be the political leader of France in 1944. So although he was working from outside France, which of course was very difficult, while it was the people who were taking the risks and, and dying for the resistance inside France who were the real heroes, de Gaulle, with his political uh, skills, managed to get himself established as both the political head of the resistance and also the voice for France on the international stage with uh, Roosevelt and, and uh, internationally. So that's quite a feat to do that from London without setting foot in France uh, in the four years up to 1944. Members of the resistance come from all different social backgrounds. They include nuns, tradesmen and teachers, business owners, peasants and aristocrats. They provide valuable intelligence to the Allies and they plan and execute acts of sabotage on Nazi telecommunications networks, the power grid, and transport facilities. 
De Gaulle dislikes Britain being involved in resistance operations. But from time to time, British special operations agents parachute into France and provide them with help. Jean Moulin dies on a train to Germany in 1943 after being arrested and tortured by the notorious Gestapo operative Klaus Barbie. But already his contribution to the war effort has been huge, and he's rightly recognised as a war hero today. On learning about Moulin's death, de Gaulle simply pauses and says, Continuons. Let's go on. 1944 is a fateful year for France and for de Gaulle. The resistance reached their height, carrying out thousands of acts of sabotage. The Normandy landings take place in June, the same month that de Gaulle is made head of the French Provisional Government. De Gaulle urges the Allies to focus on taking the city of Paris, which Hitler has threatened to destroy. On the 26th of August, the day after the Germans lose the battle for the liberation of Paris, de Gaulle strides down the Champs-Élysées in uniform, leading the victory parade, watched by an audience of thousands. He keeps his cool as snipers, loyal to Germany, start to open fire on the procession from surrounding buildings, calmly smoking a cigarette as Allied troops and resistance members fire back. The mood in France in the mid-1940s is both buoyant and vengeful. A wave of executions and public humiliations of known and suspected collaborators begins, known as the Wild Purge. The justice system of the French provisional government is in disarray, and there are up to 10,000 executions of French men and women without trial. De Gaulle starts to exercise his new authority, stamping down on the resistance groups he inspired. Thanks to de Gaulle, the resistance will become an almost mythical symbol of French defiance in the years to come. But in 1944, he takes the mantle of leadership for himself, leaving the resistance leaders out in the cold. He also skillfully excludes communist leaders from the inner circles of his government. In his typical abrupt fashion, he also starts to send the British and other European troops in the country supporting France home, saying there's no point in them being there. But what happens to Marshal Pétain? In 1944, de Gaulle's former mentor was relocated to Sigmaringen by the Germans. In 1945, aged 84, Pétain writes to Hitler, pleading to return to France. Three weeks later, he's taken to Switzerland, and from there he makes his way home, where de Gaulle tries him for treason and he is sentenced to death, a sentence which is commuted to life imprisonment, taking into account his age and his accomplishments in World War I. Pétain's Prime Minister, Pierre Laval, isn't so lucky, however. He finds refuge in Spain, but he's forced to return to France, where he's executed in 1945. Before the official end of the war, the Big Three, the Soviet Union, Britain and America, hold a peace conference in Yalta, followed by a conference in Potsdam, 
which takes place in July and August. France is excluded, and de Gaulle will never forget this slight. Our guest, Lord Peter Ricketts, speaks about the outcome of these conferences and the reasons why France wasn't included. Monsieur de Gaulle discussed the Big Three did not invite him to Yalta or Potsdam. Churchill, Roosevelt and Stalin met as the Big Three. De Gaulle regarded himself now as established in France, had this high concept of France, one of the great powers, and yet he was rebuffed. And it was largely because of Roosevelt. Roosevelt didn't want him uh, at Yalta, and therefore the decisions about the future of Europe were made without De Gaulle. And then at Potsdam, by then Roosevelt was dead and Truman was the president. And I think Truman didn't want De Gaulle at Potsdam to reopen the arguments that had been settled at Yalta, uh, make a nuisance of himself, try and get more for France. And so he agreed that, again, De Gaulle should be excluded. So it was symbolic. Uh, France was not yet one of the great powers and had to sit on the sidelines and watch the great men um, make the dispositions for the future of Europe. Has to be said, though, that France didn't do badly out of these conferences. I mean, it was agreed that France would be a permanent member of the UN Security Council. It was agreed that France should have an occupation zone of Germany, like the other allies. And so, uh, objectively, France still did well out of these final conferences. But de Gaulle always resented that he hadn't been given the respect of a great power at that point in the war. In 1946, de Gaulle holds elections which he wins, keeping his position as head of state, but he's unhappy with the structure of the new government. Frustrated and unable to change things in his favour, he resigns only two months later. Although he maintains his political contacts, he won't return to government until 1958. This period of his life, after 1946, is relatively calm and peaceful. He spends his time in the countryside with his family, working prolifically on his memoirs. His house still exists today, and it's full of beautiful furniture tailored to his height of 1.96 metres, a gesture from some patriotic French craftsmen. It's during this time in the countryside that his daughter Anne passes away in 1948. Lord Ricketts talks about de Gaulle's country house and his attachment to his family. So from all we know, de Gaulle was a very austere, frugal man, um, ferociously private, guarded his private life very carefully. And that became even more true uh, when he and his wife Yvonne had a daughter with Down syndrome, very sadly, Anne. Um, and I think that was why they chose to move to a house uh, in the remote countryside of eastern France in Lorraine. Um, and de Gaulle would often retreat there uh, and would want to be with Anne. I think they had a very close relationship with his daughter uh, until she died. And there he wanted to be completely alone. Um, and he had a capacity to be completely alone. For all those years from 46 to 58, he basically went off the radar completely, said nothing in public, uh, concentrated on writing his memoirs and his family. Uh, and even when he was president, I mean, there was only one telephone in this um, house and it was underneath the uh, stair cupboard in the, uh, there was only one telephone in this house. It was uh, in the uh, 
covered under the stairs and a telephone call was a real drama and his staff were advised not to call him except in the, in the greatest emergency. So he was close to his family. There was definitely a warm family side to him. Uh, and I think he was, he was you know, very, very... Um, so there was a warm side to him. He, he was a genuine family man in private. Uh, and I think he was um, deeply shocked and saddened by his daughter's death. It, it meant a great deal to him. And he was perhaps never quite the same again after she died. There was a, something missing in his life at that point. So there was, this was a man with a very private, perhaps rather depressive side to his character, in addition to these extraordinary uh, high-profile public positions he had. While de Gaulle is secluded in colombes les deux églises French politicians focus on rebuilding and repairing the damage done by war. The ongoing conflict in French Indochina is also a key focus of the Fourth Republic, as France tries to hold on to its territories in Southeast Asia. But only six months after France's defeat in Vietnam at Dien Bien Phu in 1954, another crisis strikes, as the Algerian uprising begins. In May 1958, that crisis reaches breaking point and de Gaulle's supporters in the army see an opportunity for the general to return. Lord Peter Ricketts speaks about this time in French history and de Gaulle's actions during and after the Algerian crisis. De Gaulle was in the political wilderness from 1946 to 1958, and for most people in France, I think he was by then seen as yesterday's man, uh, had a great war record, but was sort of no longer relevant. But the Fourth Republic went in exactly the direction that he had feared, in the sense that it soon became deadlocked with infighting among all the different parties, government changed all the time. It was a weak government dealing with some very difficult issues, the war in Indochina and pulling out from that, and from 54, 55 onwards, increasingly, this real problem crisis in Algeria uh, with the Algerian liberation movement, the FLN, um, taking up arms against the colonial power France, and many of the French residents in Algeria, uh, diehards, determined that France should never give up colonial rule in Algeria. And this developed into an open crisis by 1958, when there were calls for the army to mutiny, um, where uh, there was violence that was even spreading into France, and uh, a group of army officers called on de Gaulle to return to take charge of the country as it was on almost on the brink of a civil war. I think that's not overstating it. Um, and of course, those army officers assumed that de Gaulle, if he was reinstated to power, would favour keeping French rule over Algeria and would never accept independence. And de Gaulle coming back from his isolation in the French countryside in Colombie-les-Églises, he agreed he would do this on two conditions. Uh, one was that he should uh, be able to rule by decree for six months, effectively a kind of dictator. Um, and secondly, that he, he would be in charge of writing a new constitution for a fifth republic. And the parliamentarians were so desperate that they accepted that. And so he came back with this almost complete personal rule and he, he did two things. He, he did rewrite the constitution to make it a much more 
a much stronger executive, stronger role for the president, much weaker role for parliament, as he'd wanted in 1946, but he achieved it in, in 1958. And then he did indeed settle the uh, crisis in Algeria, but not in the way that the uh, colonialists and army wanted, because he accepted that the only way out was to grant independence to, our, to Algeria and to French to leave. He was the only person in the country who could have done that. He had the credibility uh, and the reputation that allowed him to impose this very, very unpopular policy. And you know, there were points during the crisis when there was an open kind of insurrection in, inside the French armed forces. There were some army officers who were talking about a coup d'etat and so on. It was, a, it was a real period of instability. But de Gaulle saw it through, uh, imposed his will, um, independence went through, and then France was sort of clear of that problem to, to focus on other things. And just to complete that then, once the Algeria question was settled, de Gaulle was freed up to achieve his other ambition, was, which was to make France a major player on the world stage. So we had the reconciliation with Germany uh, in 1962, very famously. We had him rejecting British uh, application to join the common market. Um, he was the first major country to open up diplomatic relations with China. He maintained a dialogue with Moscow, and he pulled France out of the NATO military structure. So Algeria being out of the way cleared the way for de Gaulle to really put France at center stage uh, among the major players in the world, which is where he had always felt it should be in his, uh, with his extraordinary capacity to kind of see the future. It's in 1963 that de Gaulle first says no to Britain joining the European common market, telling British Prime Minister Harold Macmillan that the country will have to abandon its special relationship with the United States before this can even be considered. Britain is maritime, he says. It is bound by trade, by the markets, to the most diverse array of countries. It has a lot of industry and commerce, but very little agriculture, and its habits and traditions are very different. He declines Britain's application again in 1967. Lord Ricketts believes de Gaulle saw Britain as a potential Trojan horse for American influence. De Gaulle found himself in the wonderful position for him of being able to say no to the British, and having had to put up with um, the opposite for so many years. But I think it was more than just spite uh, and resentment at the way he'd been treated during the war. I think he saw Britain as a Trojan horse for American influence inside the common market. And also because Britain would bring in to the common market in some way its uh, enormous dominions, of course, including New Zealand. And he didn't understand how that could happen without fundamentally changing the nature of the common market. I mean, the French had always seen it as a tight group of continental European countries sharing land borders, sharing industries to make sure they could never have war between them again. And the idea that Britain, with its American uh, dimensions, with its Commonwealth uh, links, would come in as a kind of Trojan horse, I think he was just deeply, deeply suspicious of that. Um, and maybe, you know, history shows that he was right, um, because Britain was always a difficult partner inside the 
uh, EU. So it may have been another part of um, of his capacity to sort of see the future. But um, at the time, it was perceived as pure spite for you know his resentments of his wartime period. It was more than that, definitely. Through the 1960s, de Gaulle is often controversial. He publicly opposes America's involvement in Vietnam, calling the war the greatest absurdity of the 20th century. During the Third Arab-Israeli War of 1967, de Gaulle unexpectedly turns away from Israel, France's co-conspirator during the Suez Canal crisis of the 1950s, and chooses to strengthen France's ties to the Arab world instead. He scandalises English-speaking politicians in Canada after proclaiming Long Live Free Quebec during a World Fair, and he also precipitates the empty chair crisis in the European Economic Community when he temporarily withdraws France from the EEC, preventing the community from making major decisions for months. France's ongoing nuclear testing in the 1960s in the Sahara Desert also causes some very serious tension with the United States. In 1966, de Gaulle downgrades France's membership in NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, pulling out of the military side of the treaty. Lord Ricketts speaks here about de Gaulle's attitude towards NATO. NATO is an organization collective defence between the North American countries and, and Europe had been created in 1949 when de Gaulle was out of power. And I think he was always suspicious of it because he saw it as a vehicle for American influence in Europe and interference in Europe. Um, he saw large numbers of American troops in Europe. He saw America as the dominant political force in NATO. And so he was always very sceptical about NATO. And when he came back to power in 1958, I think he took a hard look at NATO. Um, he was involved with the Americans in discussions about potentially having uh, shared uh, nuclear weapons, but that didn't work out. He saw the British do a separate deal with uh, Kennedy for the Polaris missile system, leaving France out in the cold. And I think when he was looking around in the 1960s for ways to profile French independence, he thought that having NATO presence, NATO's headquarters was in France, um, and that French armed forces were integrated into the NATO military structure. Uh, he thought that he should take a more distant view of NATO. So he basically kicked NATO out of France, the headquarters, they had to go to Brussels, and he withdrew French military forces from the integrated structure. He didn't leave NATO. He was too prudent for that. So he kept France as a member of the political organization, but he withdrew from the military structure. And I think that that is all part and parcel of his wish not to ever find France being dictated to by the Americans in any circumstances. And France stayed out of the um, military structure for 40 years until Nicolas Sarkozy brought them back in uh, in uh, 2008. As the 1960s wear on, the younger generation is starting to chafe against de Gaulle's conservative ideas and his anti-Americanism. The beginning of the end of his political career is the student uprising of May 1968. 
Police action to stop student protests only makes the climate of unrest worse. Workers' strikes begin, the economy grinds to a halt, and unexpectedly, de Gaulle flees France for the second time, this time heading in the opposite direction. He approaches the head of the army in West Germany, in Baden-Baden, and asks if he can rely on him for military support. In 1969, after more than a decade in power, he finally resigns. More than 400,000 protesters march through the streets of Paris chanting, Adieu de Gaulle. Lord Ricketts talks about his final months in power. Like many political careers, de Gaulle's final years were rather sad. Uh, he was, of course, getting older. Uh, in the mid-60s, he was already in his mid-70s. There was a younger generation growing up who weren't so impressed with the heroics of wartime and were probably sick of, uh, of this um, aloof figure always going on about the glory of France. Um, he misunderstood and mishandled the May 1968 student riots in Paris, and, and it was a growing feeling that he was tired and he was out of touch and he no longer understood you know, modern France of the swinging 60s. And so in the end, he left in 1969 over, frankly, a technicality. He, he called a referendum on reform of the government and reform of the Senate and lost by a small margin, and that was his pretext for leaving. But I think it was mainly he had just had enough by then. Uh, he was approaching 80 and clearly out of sync with the France of, of that period. And so it was rather a diminuendo at the end of this extraordinary heroic career that he'd had. De Gaulle's second retirement is spent in the countryside, where he continues to write his war memoirs, before his death in November 1970, at the age of 80. In typical fashion, he leaves meticulously detailed instructions for his funeral. Charles de Gaulle has a mixed and fascinating legacy. The vision of France he described in his radio broadcasts, heroic, independent, united in resistance against the Germans, became a narrative that restored French pride and honour in the post-war years. He also built a narrative about French Algeria, managing to portray the events in North Africa as a victory for human rights rather than a defeat. He always pushed the idea of French honour and greatness, and today, despite his failings, many people look back at his rule as a golden age. Before his death, the military strategist also made a number of eerily accurate predictions about world politics, including Brexit. He predicted the downfall of Yugoslavia and the future of Iraq. He also said before leaving government that the French no longer want de Gaulle, but the myth. You will see the growth of the myth in 30 years. And he was right. Lord Peter Ricketts speaks about de Gaulle's legacy in France today. De Gaulle still dominates in France to an extraordinary extent. I mean, every town you go to, there is a Rue de Gaulle, uh, there'll be a Place de Gaulle, there'll be a statue, uh, and he regularly comes top of polls of French 
people as to who is the most influential Frenchman ever. He usually beats Napoleon to that. And he did have that extraordinary ability to shape the way his countrymen thought about themselves. And I sometimes feel that he lived his life as if you know, he was already composing a legend around it, rather like Churchill, actually. You could have cut and pasted his life directly into history and you, and you had a legend. And his convictions that France was a great country, that France had to be independent of any external influence, um, that France had not been tarnished by 1940 because of the resistance. I mean, those are now hardwired into the way all French people think about themselves, quite extraordinarily. He created a role as president that nobody else has ever been able to live up to. Impossible to be both the kind of head of state that he envisaged and also the leader of a political party. But I think most important, he gave back to French people their pride and confidence in themselves after the humiliations of 1940. And for that, he is you know, the number one political figure in France still. Among the many references to de Gaulle scattered all over France is the foundation which Yvonne and Charles founded in the 1940s for severely disabled girls in honour of their daughter Anne. De Gaulle is buried with Anne and Yvonne in the peaceful cemetery at Colombe les Deux Églises. His epitaph is simple, just a name and the dates of his birth and death. To some... Charles de Gaulle was a relic of the past, stuck forever at a time when France was a great power. To others, he was one of the bravest and most astute rulers the French nation has ever had. André Malraux, the novelist who served as his Minister of Culture, perhaps summed up de Gaulle's life the most poetically. Malraux called him a man of the day before yesterday, and the day after tomorrow. Thanks for listening to Since the World's Been Turning. I'm Robin Harrison. A very special thanks to our guest, Lord Peter Ricketts, a long-time diplomat and former British ambassador to France. Thanks to Will McGillivray for the introduction music and to our writer, Elena McPhee. Please join us again next time as we continue to explore the people, events and places behind Billy Joel's iconic song. We're returning to the USA and the era of California baseball, when America's beautiful game headed west. For more episodes and information, you can follow NZ Pods, that's P-O-D-Z, on Instagram and Facebook, or you can visit our website, www.nzpods.com, that's nzpodz.com. Giving us reviews and ratings on your podcast service helps us share this project with more listeners. So please share your thoughts. We greatly appreciate your help in keeping this project going. Thanks again for listening, and please come back next time to hear more from Since the World's Been Turning.